You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right. Today, we are joined by Dr. Gordon Giles, an occupational therapist and professor professor at Samuel Merritt University in California. Um, For those of you who do not know Gordon, his research focus is on the rehabilitation of individuals with neurobehavioral disability and the assessment of functional cognition. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Gordon. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Gordon, you work with AOTA as a quality advisor. Can you tell us about that role? Yeah, sure. I think I I got onto the quality advisor panel because of work that we were doing on functional cognition, which you know we're going to talk um, about quite a bit today. AOTA had been uh, responding to CMS, which was it, itself responding to the Impact Act and trying to put the role of occupational therapy forward in terms of uh, the Impact Act. Now, the Impact Act's goal was to regularize and bring some uniformity to data collection across post-acute care settings so that uh, skilled nursing facilities, home health, acute rehabilitation, and LTAX, long term acute care. So we have been talking about cognition and what was the role of occupational therapists in assessing cognition. So AOTA had called a number of people uh, to the offices when we were still in Bethesda. Uh, We had some discussions about what was being proposed. Our thought was what was being proposed was not uh, all that it could be. And so my invitation to join the Quality Advisor panel came out of that and a push to try and get uh, CMS to include measures on functional cognition. Now, this is happening at more or less the same time that we're moving from volume to value, right? And the recognition that healthcare in the future is really going to be driven by outcomes. And so what occupational therapists need to be able to do is to demonstrate that client outcomes are significantly improved by receipt of occupational therapy services. Part of that, or at least the beginning of that, is to make sure that we're assessing the right things uh, so that we can intervene in order to improve those outcomes. What we started was looking at what are the things that occupational therapists need to assess in order for us to say that there's some uniformity in what occupational therapists do because some, at least some uniformity in what we do is about quality, right? So when you go to a restaurant, well, if you're like me, and you're a creature of habit, you know, you go to a restaurant and you like a meal and you want to go back and you want that meal to be the same. You want to have the same experience when you go back the second time uh, and at that same meal. As occupational therapists, we've kind of not had any uniformity in what we do necessarily with clients. So the idea of quality includes the idea 
that occupational therapists are going to address certain key functions in individuals. And my, my little corner of that is functional cognition. And that's how I wheedled my way onto the quality advisors panel. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that uh, kind of career path or opportunity that you had. It sounds like it's been a wonderful um, chance to advocate for our profession and really help set up um, our profession for success in assessing cognition. And that's wonderful. So th- thank you so much for that. And you've touched on it already, functional cognition. That's our, our topic for today. Uh, what is really meant by functional cognition? And how would you say a functional cognition perspective differentiates OT from other professions? Well, actually, I think, Matt, that that differentiation is one of the things that's most useful about it. So I think that most most occupational therapists would agree that cognitive functioning contributes to an individual's ability to manage in their world. But in a lot of ways, many of us have ceded cognition to other healthcare disciplines. So the construct of functional cognition is is a little bit different from what other professions are interested in. But say functional cognition is on the borderline between cognition and IADLs. So it involves executive function. It involves other aspects of cognitive function. It involves performance patterns, habits and routines. And it also involves self-awareness or metacognition in terms of strategy, use, and application. Functional cognition is where cognition meets real life. It's where the rubber meets the road. So we are less interested in some of the more abstract cognitive processes that are of interest to other disciplines, right? We're not slicing and dicing cognition in the way that certain other disciplines do. We're looking at cognition at the performance level. We're trying to see, does the individual have the resources available to meet the needs of their daily life, and usually in terms of IADLs? You can meet these needs in various ways. We know that people, for example, can use various strategies in the face of what might be considered underlying cognitive deficits in order to continue to perform IADLs, even though they have even sometimes quite severe cognitive deficits. So, so that's what we're looking, looking at. And we know, because the research is pretty clear, that there is no one-to-one correspondence between demonstrating cognitive impairment and demonstrating impairment in performing even quite complex IADLs. One of the things that's really useful about this is that it gives occupational therapists a uh, place to stand when it comes to talking about cognition that is quite different from the types of assessments and uh, the way we think about intervention that is different from that of other disciplines. I love that. I love that. That's a very eloquent way to put um, o- OT's role and perspective on functional cognition. I love that phrase of of helping people to to learn how to manage in in their world. And you have a very rich history um, in 
functional cognition, I want to ask, how did your early experience as a student and a practitioner lead you to really pursue research um, and everything you've done related to functional cognition? Matt, I am very old. And so I started, when did I start as a student of OT? 83, I think. Well, so I went to school at an occupational therapy school uh, called St. St. Andrew's School of Occupational Therapy, which was on the largest private psychiatric hospital in the United Kingdom. And it so happened that at that time, a group of uh, physicians and neuropsychologists who would later become very famous were opening the first behavior disorder program for brain-injured people in the world. Now, this is less impressive than it actually sounds because at, at that time, in the United States, there were seven programs devoted to working with people with traumatic brain injury. So we have come a long way in terms of thinking about how to work with people with functional deficits based on brain damage. I kind of went around the houses there. To get back to your question, we were developing ways to try and help people with very severe brain damage, relearn basic self-care skills. So uh, we didn't call it this at the time, but we were essentially developing a errorless learning approach based out of behavior theory. Now, a lot of people have, you know, kind of their negative connotations around behaviorism and uh, behavioral interventions. For us, what we were really taking from it was um, a set of mechanisms that would allow us through repetition and incentivization ways to teach people self-care skills. So that's what we were doing and, and, and that evolved with my colleague Joe Clark Wilson in England into the neurofunctional approach. Again, to get back to your question on functional cognition, uh, an enduring question for me was how do you decide whether or not an individual is going to be able to make use of strategies, whether they're going to be able to cognitively learn to adapt their behavior when given, um, you know, kind of put in the right circumstances or when encouraged to do so through experience, or whether you're going to need to teach skills because the individual is not able to make the conscious adaptations that are necessary uh, to improve their performance. And so, really, for the last 40 years, this has been a preoccupation of mine. How do we decide what intervention is going to be the most useful for an individual who has uh, some level of cognitive impairment? And what are the kinds of assessments that we can use in order to direct our interventions? And really, the progress that has been made in, in functional cognition is really helping answer that question. Another bizarre aside from this is that a lot of the performance-based testing of functional cognition was really stimulated by some papers that were written by Paul Burgess out of the UK. Uh, he, along with Tim Chalice, published a paper which really introduced the multiple errands test, which is 
quite a complex and interesting test. And a lot of the principles in that test have been adapted uh, into occupational therapy performance-based measures of functional cognition. Paul Burgess was a psych tech at the same time that I was an occupational therapist at this uh, program in the UK. So uh, we've known one another for a long time. So it's interesting that kind of my interests have once again come back to the same area that that, uh, Dr. Burgess has been working in. Absolutely. That is extremely interesting. And I'm really happy that you brought up that question of how to determine what intervention or what approach is appropriate. Um, I know for me as a student and uh, a newer practitioner, uh, that's a, a question that I'm constantly asking myself. Um, and I'm so excited to have you on the show today to to give us some guidance and, and outline some of those approaches um, for our listeners and give some guidance on on how someone can really determine what is appropriate. It, it really highlights the importance of this topic um, and what motivates you personally to, to generate um, and disseminate all this research and, and best practices. Um, so I'd love to just, just go ahead and dive in to, to functional cognition. What practice settings and, and client populations um, would you say are appropriate for applying principles of functional cognition? Matt, it's an evolving area, right? And so this meeting that I talked about at AOTA happened in 2015. And um, we have been working a group of which I'm a junior member uh, with uh, Dorothy Edwards, Tim Wolf, and, and others. Um, we have been working on developing a screening tool uh, called the Menu Task, and then the other great researchers, uh, Joan Toglia, for example. Uh, so the weekly calendar planning activity, the performance assessment of self-care skills, the AMPs. There are now lots of uh, performance-based measures of functional cognition that can be implemented. So let me talk a little bit about what, what, what they are, right? So, so a performance-based test, rather than, again, slicing and dicing cognition into, you know, episodic memory, you know, various types of attention and so forth, we're really looking at cognition at the performance level. And so we're giving individuals a relatively complex task to perform in which we're setting the parameters of the performance, but then allowing the person to do it any way that they can. While the administration is standardized, the way that the uh, individual test taker is going to solve the problem is really left up to them. Uh, We're often looking at things like initiation, uh, inhibition, self-regulation, safety awareness, Oh, I should have mentioned also the executive function performance test would be uh, an, another uh, performance-based measure of functional cognition. So you, you're giving people a relatively complex task and saying, you know, have at it and see what you can do. And then we're also frequently in these tests asking people to predict how they're going to do, to tell us how they did, and to tell us about any errors that they made during the performance. You know, as I mentioned before, one of the, one of the principal components that we talk about in functional cognition is self-awareness or metacognition, right? If an individual can't recognize their mistakes, it's really tough to get them to use strategies. 
Right. So, so one of the things we're looking at is how does the person perform the task? And then another thing we're looking at is what is their awareness of the way that they perform the task? So I am Dorothy Edwards from the University of Wisconsin and Tim Wolf from University of Missouri and, and also a, a graduate student, Tim Marks at the University of Wisconsin have been working on a menu task uh, where we hand people a two-sided piece of paper. We tell them certain rules that they're to follow and we ask them to pick out menu items for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks while, as I said, following certain rules. That's a screening task that we have been using with people in the community. Uh, we've probably administered that to six or seven hundred people at this point and have been looking at its ability to predict the performance of uh, more complex performance-based assessments. So when I go back to go back to talk about quality, one of the things that for certain classes of individuals whom we see or with certain diagnoses that we really, I think, should be assessing is functional cognition. I think it will really help us in selecting treatment outcomes. So one of the objections to performance-based tests is that they take too long. So we have been focused on trying to develop a particular test, the menu task, that takes, you know, three or four minutes. So at the moment, we have administered this in community uh, settings. It has also been administered in acute care settings. We were with uh, Tim, Tim Marks, the PhD student at the University of Wisconsin. We were right on the cusp of doing acute hospital, a large acute hospital study. And then COVID hit and everything stopped. So I think we're just about to begin that, that again. Uh, other people have been using it. It's being translated into about seven different languages at the moment. But there are also things like the weekly calendar planning activity that have shortened versions where people are beginning to report using these in acute uh, and post-acute care settings. So typically when you do a screening test or you screen somebody in some way, you do that when you don't know if the individual has a problem. So you screen, if the evidence suggests that there is a problem, then you move forward to a more of a diagnostic assessment. So uh, as you know, occupational therapists often have to move very, very quickly. There are lots of benchmarks that we need to hit. So you can't spend 20 minutes assessing whether or not somebody has a cognitive problem in, in, in many, many settings. So testing uh, screening tools can be really helpful. Uh, right now, we're thinking community post-acute and acute care settings, but, you know, then the issue becomes actually getting the word out and, and talking with people about actually doing this. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description. 
and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice. Now back to the interview. Absolutely. That's that's always a challenge that that, that dissemination piece. Um, and I think this information is is painting a really uh, wonderful picture of how functional cognition is used to um, address performance skills and patterns really across a variety of settings within OT. Um, those are some great tips and recommendations um, for for being effective in in screening and assessment as as well. And and I want to follow that up by asking you what are some effective um, occupational therapy interventions uh, that you would encourage practitioners to implement after completing an, an assessment that includes an occupational profile? So Matt, Matt, this is one of the major advantages, I think, of um, performance-based testing of functional cognition, right? Because it's at the performance level. So it really helps guide therapists into, into what to do with clients. And as an instructor, so I have um, capstone students, and I've been teaching a course on functional cognition. And, and the, the, the fun thing about capstone students is that, or at least prior to COVID, they were off doing their um, level two uh, internships, and then they came back and they would take my functional cognition course. And, and what they were saying was that it was really difficult because many practitioners they were finding really did not know at what level to intervene with individuals um, who had cognitive impairment. And so the nice thing about uh, functional cognitive assessments is that it really helps it in that decision-making process. As I said before, if you really have no insight into the errors that you're making, you can't really use strategies. Now, there could be attempts to help people develop that insight, but depending on how, how profound the lack of insight is, that can be a, an uphill struggle. So kind of the, I think the basic rule would be is the person able to adapt their behavior based on feedback? If the person is able to adapt to their behavior based on seeing their own performance or being guided to see their own performance deficits, then I think there is the opportunity to use strategy-based interventions. So things like Joan Tobias' multi-context approach or um, Helen Politajko's co-op intervention, uh, uh, processes of guided discovery where the individual is adapting their performance on the fly to try and improve their performance. If an individual is really not able to make use of those kinds of interventions, then we, I think we should be thinking about uh, skill training, what are the specific things that an individual needs to be able to do in order to function in their environment. And, and, and you would also, so you think that, and then you would also think about environmental modification, environmental support. So if the client can, can learn about their deficits and adapt, it, even, you know, if, if that's quite structured by the therapist, 
then a strategy training approach is, is going to be useful. If they're not, then skill habit training or environmental modification is going to be more useful for them. Now, that, of course, is at the very basic level in, in terms of a decision tree. I mean, you're basically uh, developing two or three parts. Many of the performance-based tests of functional cognition, such as the weekly calendar planning activity, give you a ton more information about how the individual learns and how they're going to be able to adapt their performance that you can build into uh, your intervention planning. I love that. Thank you for emphasizing that that keyword insight and the ability to adapt behavior. Um, this sounds like such a, a key um, performance factor or pattern for practitioners to look for when they're they're conducting these assessments. And and you mentioned the difference between kind of more skill training versus strategy based. I I want to focus now on the neurofunctional approach, which uh, you um, helped to develop and has been demonstrated to be the only training approach to accelerate recovery in the early period following traumatic brain injury. Um, What is the neurofunctional approach and when is this form of skill or, or habit training appropriate to be used in practice? Yeah, you know, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier when I when we were at the the behavior disorder program for, for people with traumatic brain injury, we were really interested in the, the 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 mechanism of practice. How does practice facilitate performance? And so one of one of my colleagues there said that you want people to initially to practice uh, till they can get it right. And then you want them to continue to practice until they can't get it wrong, which was, I thought that was very clever, not mine. Um, uh, initially, we started with a, a very straightforward behavioral approach, uh, which in which we were attempting to reward people in some way for engaging in our programs. Now, that's because um, we were working in a behavior disorder unit and people were uh, quite irritable a lot of the time. Um, when I started working with people who were less behaviorally dysregulated, I realized that most people want to learn. And particularly, they want to learn skills if you're not confronting them about the fact that they have a head injury and they have deficits. So we don't talk about that at all. We develop relationships and we engage people positively uh, on their own goals. Now, you know, th- this is sometimes problematic because sometimes patients want to learn things that we don't see as particularly that important. But, you know, you're going to, you're going to work with the patient in terms of doing things that they want to do. And so you get some relationship leverage in order to do things that, that you want to uh, do because you think they will be really helpful for the patient. So, you know, I work in, in California here. We have a lot of, uh, Individuals with with head trauma who uh, don't have much insight, and so you really can't have a conversation with many of the clients um, that we work with about uh, improving their street crossing safety. But they'll walk with you to the Seven Eleven to buy a bag of chips, right? So it's it's a question of finding the goals that you can engage with the patient about and then 
setting up repetitive practice uh, systems where you can do the same thing in the same way over and over again until it becomes an automatic behavior for the patient. Um, particularly if you're working on things that are enacted frequently, it becomes that the patient can't get it wrong. Right? So, uh, for example, I've trained people uh, who are many years post-injury and who have been unable to bathe and dress themselves for years. We've trained them to be independent in bathing and dressing themselves in, in sometimes just a few weeks. Uh, on a couple of occasions, I've had the opportunity to go back and talk with the individuals 10, 15 years later. And I asked them how they learned how to bathe and dress themselves. And they look at me like I'm a madman and said, I've always done it like this. And they're doing it in exactly the way that they were taught. So when we started, we were doing it really in a post-acute care setting. And so what has been so exciting recently is the uh, application of the neurofunctional approach to people with severe brain injury during post-traumatic amnesia. So the period that follows a severe traumatic brain injury where the individual cannot remember any individual discrete event. So they'll be frequently confused about why they're in the hospital. They won't know that they've had a head injury and they won't remember any um, individual interaction that they have with another person or with the therapist. But what has been demonstrated in a, in a reasonably large randomized control trial is that the application of this approach, um, having people practice ADLs and simple IADLs over and over again while in the, in the hospital both improves their performance and although this was not statistically significant but it was if you actually eyeballed the data it accelerated recovery and got individuals out of the hospital faster. Now I should say that that was not statistically significant but when you look at the numbers it's it's a pretty clear trend towards that acceleration of uh, hospital discharge. I have nothing to do with this study. It's, it's pretty exciting. You know, you, you put yourself out there and, and uh, there have been now three um, pretty large randomized control trials looking at the neurofunctional approach and its application. And, and it, it's looking pretty good. That, of course, is only one uh, habit training technique. There, there, are, there are others, right? So. What we did was just combine this behavioral methods of uh, structuring practice with a, really a relational and a client-centered approach. I love that. And that, that's so fascinating that... Uh... These these outcomes have have been observed in in different studies, um, and the, those components of being client centered and and setting up those repetitive practice scenarios are are so important. What principles should practitioners really be considering and and doing their best to follow when implementing these types of um, of interventions? Relationship is so important, right? And it's really hard because we're really rushed. But establishing a, a positive therapeutic relationship 
with the individual with whom you're working. Really thinking about the language that you use. So in the neurofunctional approach, we try and avoid any kind of language that is suggestive that the individual is impaired or damaged in some way. So, um, right, everybody needs to relax. Everybody needs to use, uh, you know, some kind of structured way to remember what they need to do. So we're really looking at non-confrontational language where the individual is not put in a position where they need to assert their independence in order to maintain their sense of um, self-worth. So that the idea of relationship is, I think, really central of central importance. I love that. I love that emphasis of relationship um, and that, that non-confrontational language um, can be so instrumental in, in helping someone to achieve the, the best outcomes possible. Um, I, I know there's a question I've had when, when learning about um, these types of neurofunctional approaches, and that's trying to determine how you can ensure that you're helping a client to integrate thinking and their own performance skills and patterns into their daily routines uh, while not isolating or addressing components of cognition out of context. Um, how, how would you recommend a practitioner do that? Well, you know, Matt, what we do is we really look at the tasks that the individual needs to perform. And so we're not, again, we're not practicing remembering, for example. We're practicing doing a task that the individual needs to do. So the, the clinical relevance for the client is often very apparent. Now, sometimes if the individual doesn't recognize that they have a problem, you need to do this incidentally. So, for example, the uh, I can't say to a client, let's go practice crossing the street safely, but I can say, let's go to the 7-Eleven and buy a bag of chips, and then on the way, we're going to be practicing uh, crossing the street sa- safely using exactly the same cues and exactly the same behaviors each time we cross the street. What we're doing is breaking down a functional task into the key decision points and then practicing those repetitively. Now, honestly, this can actually, for for some of us that are, you know, because occupational therapists are really focused on the way that we change and adapt things. So one of the things that is a little bit tricky in the neurofunctional approach is No, once you've set up the program, you just do it over and over again. So it can feel a little bit like skill loss. That's some of the the feedback that I've got from people. But in in the Australian study, when the therapists were actually interviewed after they'd really learned the neurofunctional approach and got into using it, what they said was they found that their relationship with the client was much stronger and that um, the engagement in, in the activity of rehab was also uh, much better. So it's, it's a little bit of a different way of doing things. But therapists, once, once they've got the hang of it, find it quite pleasant to do. 
Uh, absolutely. It sounds like a, a wonderful intervention. Um, and I, I love those key points of, of finding the relevance to the client, identifying uh, key decision points, um, and using the same cueing over and over. What what tips could you give um, practitioners about maintaining that uh, cueing hierarchy or, or using the same cues over and over? How would you recommend they do that efficiently? So one of the fun things about working with people with neurological impairments, right, is that everybody is different. So we do a task analysis for every individual. One reason that we do this is that learning is difficult, right? So learning is hard. So you don't want to teach people, you don't want to teach teach people to do things in ways that are not natural for them. So, for example, uh, an individual might... Uh, bathe and dress themselves in a certain order. We're not going to change that order. If that's the natural order that the individual has, then we want to incorporate that into a program that allows the person to be successful. A lot of these um, programs with people with severe brain injury, we're, we're working with both cognitive and motoric deficits. And so we're developing a, a program of transfers, for example, that allows the person to be successful. And then once we've established that, uh, typically as um, a set of prompts that are written down and then can just be enacted by everybody uh, 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 who is working with that client. So we, we write it down. Now, more recently, there's been a lot of work on automated um, smart queuing systems. I have not been involved in that, but I've been really excited by these uh, 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 prompting systems that are, of course, portable, are adapted specifically for a client, and that can be then used for a period of time and then discarded once the client has actually developed the skill. So that's uh, uh, really something that's exciting in terms of smart technology being applied, being applied to this kind of intervention. That, that, that does sound very exciting, very interesting to to look into more. You, you've already shared a couple great examples of, um, you know, going to 7-Eleven for a bag of chips, uh, your, your showering or, or grooming example as well. Um, is there another case study or, or personal example of when you have implemented an evidence-informed approach that helped someone with cognitive deficits attain a positive health outcome that you could share with us? I'm not sure I can hit all of those marks, uh, Matt, but so one of the things that came to mind was a gentleman who was, uh, who had a, a stroke and who was a, a small business owner. Well, it wasn't that small. It was a middle-sized business and uh, it was a trucking company. And he was the person who supervised the scheduling uh, for uh, his drivers. And so he had had a stroke, he was in acute rehab, and this is actually, um, uh, this description is actually based on one of my graduate students who gave the client, uh, administered to the client the weekly calendar planning activity, right? So in the weekly calendar planning activity, um, uh, the full adult version, uh, an individual is given a blank calendar and is asked to uh, to enter 17 different activities into a weekly calendar. Now, they have to follow certain rules, and there are built-in conflicts in these uh, activities that they have to enter. So 
they have to kind of manage these conflicts. So uh, this gentleman, who, as I said, was um, managing a trucking company and had had a, a stroke, was given the weekly calendar planning activity, he completed it in about 10 minutes, while saying that this was something that he did all the time and it was no problem for him at all, um, and he made a total hash of it. It was a disaster. And he had absolutely no insight into the fact that he'd made a total mess of it. And even with, you know, kind of some encouragement and cueing to look back at it to see if he had made any errors, he was completely rejecting of the idea that he could have made any errors because this is something that he did. So um, with his permission, of course, the conversations were taking place with his family members and work colleagues um, that uh, he could not, even though he thought he could, he would not be able to go back and without uh, close supervision be able to manage uh, uh, this company, at least in the in the state that he was at this time of testing. So, so this is, I think, we probably saved the business by administering the weekly calendar planning activity because you know the Matt the the thing is that the evidence that we have is that, and this comes back to quality, is that a lot of individuals who are potentially at risk for having functional cognitive deficits look pretty good, they talk a good story, and can be missed, right? The fact that they have even sometimes quite significant cognitive deficits can be overlooked. Now, again, this is particularly the case when you're in a fast-paced environment. The client may not be in the setting for, a, for, a, for that many days. And so screening is really important in terms of getting that quality that we're interested in. Now, of course, screening and assessment is not, not the end. But if you don't identify that the individual has a problem, then you can't intervene in order to improve those outcomes. And for us as a profession going forward, we're going to be judged, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, we're going to be judged by the outcomes that we can produce for clients. And so that is what is important. But first you have to identify there's a problem. Then you have to decide how you're going to intervene in a way that is going to impact the client's ability to perform in their, in their real world. Absolutely. I, I love that, Gordon. Thank you for, for sharing that, that example. Um, and, and a follow-up, what did the intervention look like for um, this uh, individual who had experienced the stroke? Well, for this particular individual, the, the, the first line of defense was actually to stop him from doing this without supervision. So the idea was that his family that were also involved in the business would kind of divide up the activities so that there were things that he could do that were independent and would make him feel okay about himself, but would not destroy the company. And so really it was environmental and social support that was central here to having this work for the clients and for the, for the other people who were involved uh, in his life. Absolutely. That's a, a, a wonderful example. Thank you for, again for uh, for sharing that. Gordon, you also were the Eleanor Clark Slagle Award recipient for 2018. 
kudos for that. Um, in, in your lecture titled Neurocognitive Rehabilitation um, Skills or Strategies, you share some additional um, aspects of your background and personal experiences with functional cognition. Um, and I did want to ask you about that lecture and if there's um, anything you'd like to say or summarize for our listeners um, on that today. Well, it was incredibly nerve-wracking. I knew that I was probably never going to spend as much time preparing for a talk uh, ever again. Um, so it took me about six months uh, to put it together, and so many people helped me. It was um, so great. My colleagues at Samuel Merritt University, uh, people at the University of Wisconsin allowed me to pilot it, and so it was a, it was a lot of fun doing it. So, but it was part of, it was kind of back to, um, you know, uh, quality because one of the reasons that I was so excited about having the opportunity to do the Alan Clark Stagel lecture was the idea of putting some of this information out into the, the world about functional cognition and how you make decisions as to what kind of intervention you're going to provide for a client. So, you know, there's lots of evidence from all kinds of disciplines that from the inception of an idea that people believe will improve outcomes to actually having it adopted by people throughout a profession can take, you know, decades. And so part of what we've been trying to do with the the, in the quality advisors group is really look at ways to interact with AOTA membership to kind of spread the word that functional cognition is, is a construct that can be really helpful for occupational therapists, that we can address functional cognition as part of a quality toolkit it's one of the benchmarks that we need to hit along with, you know, for seniors, for example, activities of daily living, IADLs, vision, fall prevention and fear of falling, uh, uh, fear of falling and participation. You know, it's one of the things that would indicate if we can, if we can get some uniformity across occupational therapy providers and you know no, no one's ever going to tell occupational therapists you know what tools they need to use or what they need to do but if we can get some uniformity and at least addressing some of these issues in people who are at risk of um, having deficits in these areas as it's just it's just something that occupational therapists check in on then that is definitely a step in the direction of having uniform quality across occupational therapy providers and, and giving us more of a chance to really improve outcomes. I, I love that, the importance of, of improving and, and uniforming a, a quality among uh, our profession. Um, and you've mentioned a number of resources um, that I would love to link our listeners to, one being your, your Slagle lecture. Um, and if you could send me a link to the menu task um, and maybe some of uh, what you touched on with the uh, automated prompting devices, I can make that available for listeners in our episode description as well. 
Sure. I would also draw people's attention to the quality toolkit on the AOTA, um, on the, the, the lovely revamped AOTA um, website. So there's quite a lot of material uh, on the AOTA w- uh, website. As I said, the quality toolkit, and uh, you just put in the magnifying glass, functional cognition, a lot of stuff comes up. Perfect. I I love that. We'll encourage our listeners to to check that out as well on AOTA.org. Um Gordon, this has been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for sharing your um your knowledge and your expertise in, in this area. Um and I have just one question for you now. This is our concluding golden nugget segment. Gordon, if you could give one piece of advice or share one piece of knowledge with OT practitioners, what would you say? Gosh, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going to reject the question, Matt, and I'm going to talk about evidence-based practice. And I would say that if you're going to adopt functional cognition as part of your professional practice, what you really need to be able to do is to develop a peer group of supporters in the place that you work to encourage and share resources and and knowledge. And and the reason I'm saying that is that there's evidence that that really helps. There's a recent survey in the uh, Australian Journal of OT on functional cognition and what helps people um, actually incorporate functional cognition into their into their professional practice. So getting like-minded people around you to help support your practice. I love that. Setting up a community and and setting yourself up for success um, by so doing. That's a, a wonderful piece of advice. Um, Gordon, it's been a, a true pleasure having you um, on the show. Thank you again so much for your time. Well, thank you, Matt, for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.